Hello, it's the first day of December, and welcome to our Thursday edition of Crow 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Woo. A special investigative police team into the deadly Itaewon crowd crush is seeking warrants to detain four senior police officers as part of its probe. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. The union-backed truckers' strike is entering its eighth day with no resolution in sight. We'll speak to a representative from an affiliated union for a special Korean Politics Digest today. And on Wednesday, the Korean traditional mask dance, Taochum, was added to UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list. We'll learn about it for Explore Korea later. Let's begin Korea 24. A special investigative team under the National Police Agency is seeking arrest warrants for four senior officers as part of its probe into the inept preparation and response to the deadly Itaewon crowd crush one month ago now. Our KBS World Radio News Editor Gui Jin joins us in the studio to tell us of the first warrants in the probe over the fatal tragedy that t- took the lives of 158 people. Gui Jin, hello. Hello, Zhang so this comes just over a month after the fatal crowd surge. What can you tell us of the warrant request? Well, the team filed a request with the Seoul Western District Court to arrest Im Jae, uh, head of the Yongsan Police Station in charge of the Itaewon District, um, the station's senior intelligence officer, Park Sung-min, and his subordinate, Kim Jin-ho, and Song Byung-ju, the station's emergency monitoring officer at the time of the October 29 tragedy. The warrant detailed suspicions that Park and Kim destroyed reports outlining possible safety concerns during the Halloween period, while Lee uh, allegedly failed to set up proper preventative uh, crowd control measures even after prior warnings of overcrowding. Uh, Song faces allegations of failing to promptly report the situation to Lee. Uh, this marks the first time, as you said, the, that the unit has sought arrest warrants for those related to the incident, and the special unit is also looking into seeking warrants for prime suspects at other agencies. The team on Thursday, also called in Yun Shisung, head of the security department of the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency, as a witness to clarify whether Im Jae had requested additional support from the Seoul police ahead of the Halloween festivities. Now, Im Jae claimed that he twice requested additional forces from the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency prior to the uh, Halloween, uh, and a claim refuted by the agency's Chief Kim Gwang, who said he received no such request. The special unit said earlier they confirmed a phone discussion between Kim and Yun, concurring that various factors made it dif- difficult to deploy more police in the Itaewon area. Meanwhile, at the National Assembly, the ruling People Power Party and the main opposition Democratic Party clashed over a bill to dismiss the interior minister over the Itaewon tragedy. They clashed about opening a plenary session to handle the DP-backed bill. Can you tell mm-hmm. us more? Well, National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo and the floor leaders of the PPP and DP, Chu Ho-young and Park Hong-gun, met on Thursday to discuss whether no- or not to de- uh, convene a plenary session, but failed to reach an agreement. Uh, speaking to reporters after the meeting, Chu said that he had strongly requested that Kim not 
open a plenary session without an agreement on the agenda, arguing that the passage of next year's budget by Friday's deadline could be disrupted by a politicised agenda. Meanwhile, DP floor leader Park insisted that the plenary session should be held on Thursday, saying that the parliamentary schedule had been agreed to by both parties. The dispute comes after a motion by the DP, DP was tabled on Wednesday, calling for the dismissal of Interior Minister Lee Sang-min to hold him accountable for the bungled emergency response. Uh, the Assembly Speaker is expected to make a final decision on the plenary session after gathering the opinions from floor leaders of both parties. And adding to the rift between the two rival parties, a former President Moon Jae-in has reportedly warned the incumbent administration not to cross the line in its ongoing investigation into his government's handling of the 2020 shooting death of a South Korean fisheries official by North Korea. Can you tell us more? Well, main opposition Democratic Party representative Yoon Gon-young on Thursday uh, laid uh, Moon's remarks in a press conference at the National Assembly. Moon warned that the incumbent government should not cross the line, claiming that uh, related authorities are now overturning previous conclusions based on the same information and circumstantial evidence that had formed the basis for his own administration's very different findings at the time. The DP lawmaker, who previously served as Moon's aide, also cited the former president as saying uh, the current probe is turning national security issues into political dispute and is trampling on the pride of public officials who have dedicated their lives to national security. This marks the first time that former President Moon Jae-in has officially issued a statement on the prosecution's investigation into the controversial shooting death of a South Korean official by North Korea. Uh, The Moon administration is now suspected to have concluded on insufficient grounds that Lee Dae-jun intentionally defected to North Korea and failed to provide help before the official was shot to death by North Korean uh, soldiers. Let's turn now to the latest on the ongoing truckers' strike. Uh, The truckers' union met with the government for a second round of talks on Wednesday, which fell through after the two sides failed to narrow differences. So what's the latest? Well, as the walkout entered its eighth day on Thursday, the Korea Cement Association reported cumulative losses in sales through Wednesday, totaling 95.6 billion won or $74 million. The group forecast losses to surpass the total incurred during their previous strike in June within the day on Thursday. Shipments, however, returned to 25% of the daily average with increased participation by non-union workers uh, following the government's call for them to return to work. Uh, After nearly 80 complaints were reported to the Korea International Trade Association as of Thursday morning, they concerned uh, penalties arising from delayed deliveries or cancellation on order, orders from overseas. And as more and more gas stations run out of fuel due to supply disruptions due to the strike, uh, the government is mulling on issuing an official return-to-work order for drivers in the oil industry as well. Can you tell us more? Well, the Ministry of Trade, Industry and Energy announced on Thursday that a meeting was held to start preparations 
for the order to be applied to four major oil refineries as well as the Korea Petroleum Association, the Korea Oil Station Association and the Korea National Oil Corporation. The ministry said the meeting uh, participants assessed uh, losses incurred by the oil industry and discussed response measures, announcing that it had secured an alternative means uh, uh, to transport oil, including five military tankers and 29 agricultural and fishery tankers. As of 8 a.m. Thursday, 33 gas stations nationwide had run out of fuel, with the largest concentration in the Seoul area. Meanwhile, the union for Seoul's subway reached a deal with management on the company's restructuring plan on Thursday, effectively ending a general strike in one day. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners uh, might have been stuck at subway stations last night. Can you uh, tell us more about the agreement? Well, labour unions of Seoul Metro and management uh, resumed negotiations at 8pm on Wednesday and reached an agreement just past midnight after four hours of talks. The agreement entailed a decision by the company not to push ahead with its restructuring plan to lay off 1,500 workers as the two sides had agreed on in a special deal in September last year. The two sides also agreed on a one4 wage increase and agreed to work together to produce safety measures. With that agreement, subways resumed normal operations from 5.30am Thursday. And finally, turning to the economy, South Korea's exports shrank some 14% on year in November, the second consecutive monthly decline amid an economic slowdown. Soaring energy prices led to a spike in imports as well, resulting in a trade deficit for the eighth straight month. So can you break down the figures for us? Well, the Ministry of Trade, Industry and Energy announced on Thursday that the nation's outbound shipments reached $51.9 billion in November, down 14% from a year earlier. The growth momentum carried on through September this year before exports contracted in October. October compared to last year and dipped further in November. The ministry cited a global economic downturn and falling consumer demand as contributing factors. Uh, Shipments of semiconductors, the country's staple exports uh, dropped nearly 30%, while outbound petrochemicals also fell over 26%. Although exports to the US and the Middle East rose during the same period, shipments to China tumbled by 20%. 25%, along with a 14% slump in exports to Southeast Asia. Imports, on the other hand, gained 2.7% on-year, with a sharp spike topping 27% in energy products such as crude oil, gas and coal. The resulting trade deficit totaled $7 billion last month, continuing an eight-month streak of losses. It's the first time since the Asian uh, financial crisis in the 1990s that the trade deficit stayed in the red for eight more consecutive months. Uh, The uh, government has pledged to diversify the nation's export items and to reinforce customised strategies for each target market. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you.
Today, Thursday, was day eight of the nationwide truckers' strike that is threatening to disrupt the nation's logistics network. The unionised truck drivers are calling for an extension and expansion of the safe trucking freight rates system to ensure safer working conditions and safer traffic. But tensions escalated this week after the government issued a return-to-work order for truckers in the cement sector. The two sides met for talks on Wednesday again, but the meeting lasted less than an hour, with little progress made, and it seems neither side is ready to back down for now. To learn more about the situation and what the truck drivers are demanding for a special Korean Politics Digest today, we have joining us in the studio now, Imwolsan, the Road Transport Section Vice Chair of the International Transport Workers Federation, which is affiliated with the KPTU Cargo Truckers Solidarity Division. Ms. Im, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. So it's been over a week since the unionised truckers launched a strike. For our listeners, can you tell us what caused the strike? What are the truckers demanding? Yeah, I think you, you said it as you made your introduction, but the main demand in this strike, which is the same demand that we had in uh, June when there was a similar strike uh, earlier this year, is for uh, making the safe trucking freight rate system, or safe rates for short, the safe rate system permanent, and then expanding it to more sectors. So this system basically uh, sets minimum rates of pay for owner-drivers. Owner-drivers, unlike other workers in Korea, are not covered by minimum, minimum wage law. Um, it does two things. It sets a rate that is fair for them and then also safe so they don't have to drive excessively long hours or overload their trucks or speed in order to make ends meet uh, so they can drive safely and make everybody on the road safer. It does that. And then it also makes the big companies at the top of road transport supply chains responsible for ensuring that those safe rates are met. So the truck drivers are asking for this system to be, uh, it's right now it's limited time period, so it's supposed to expire at the end of the year without new, new legislation to make uh, pass new legislation, which would remove what we call a sunset clause, the clause that makes the law expire, remove it, make the system permanent. And then right now it only covers 6.2% of trucks. That's trucks that are driving, uh, that are uh, hauling cement, a bulk cement or, or import and export containers, expand it to more sectors so that we can really make the roads safer and truck drivers can you know spend more time with their family and have a decent life. Right. So it's about... Uh, extending and expanding the safe rates uh, system, as you said. And you mentioned it's a, it was originally implemented with the intention of guaranteeing a minimum shipping rate for truck drivers, thus mitigating exhaustion and overloading. But can you explain a bit more for us how the system is aimed at doing that? Uh, and are there similar systems in other countries? So if you look at the way road transport is organized, it is in, in Korea we talk about multiple levels of subcontracting. In other places around the world, we talk about extended supply chains. It means there's a big company at the top that is is signing a contract with another big transport company. Let's say it's POSCO or it's, uh, you know, a... Um, uh, an, an export company that signs mm. a you know a contract with a logistics company, and then they sign another contract with a transport company. And down at the bottom, you have truck drivers at every level. Some of the money that gets paid for that service that the worker has actually done is taken out. Um, and so, what this system is doing is 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 ensuring that the workers at the bottom get the money that they need uh, to be able to meet their bills. So, if workers don't have the money, let's say after driving ten hours or eight hours to meet their bills, what do they do? They drive longer. Mm. If you have a worker that's fatigued on the road, have you ever if you if you've driven past a big 
you know, a freight, uh, a truck, you know it's scary. And if you mm. can think about it, this truck passing me, I know that driver's now driven for 14 hours, slept in their vehicle, hasn't been home for a week. That's pretty dangerous. And so there's lots of research around both in Korea and internationally that proves if you pay a safe rate to a driver, they will reduce their working time and they'll drive more safely. They'll take care of their, you know, they'll do better maintenance on their vehicles um, and, and it'll make the road safer for everyone. So that's that's the, um, you know, that's the logic behind it. There's another issue in Korea. There's a lot of overloading. So there's certain uh, safe weight limits for what you can carry on your truck. But truck drivers, in order to carry more, to be able to make more money, will be overloading their vehicles. Or they have those big companies at the top of the supply chain telling them to overload their vehicles. And the system actually puts a penalty on when that happens. So it's, it's, it's been much improved. The government likes to say that systems like this don't exist in other countries, but that's actually just a lie. There's this, we actually uh, learned about safe rates from Australia. There's a safe rate system that's been in place for, since 1979 in one state, New South Wales. They just passed a law to extend it to Queensland, and they're working towards uh, legislation to make it national, which will probably pass next, last, uh, sorry, excuse me, next year. There's a similar system, uh, minimum freight rate system in Brazil, which ex- covers 12 different types of freight uh, vehicles. And a similar system in Canada, for instance. And, you know, of course, every every um, country is a little bit different in their legislation and the organization of the market. But the principles behind all of these are the same. Make sure truck drivers can cover their costs. Make sure that they have decent pay. Make sure that they can reduce their hours, drive safely so that the roads can be safer. And make the, make the companies, the big ones with the money, make sure that they are taking responsibility. Well, critics of the system say that among the OECD member states... Uh, such safe rate systems is not enforced by law and punished by violations. Uh, but are you saying that's uh, not true? That's not true. So that in in all of the systems that I just mentioned, if you violate what the minimum rates that are set through those systems, there are fines. In some cases, they're much higher. For example, in in Canada. Uh, that you know you can have your business license cancelled if you violate the minimum violate the minimum rates and fines are much you know I think that they're in the several hundred as much as this, you know several hundred thousand dollars so um, it's it's just a, a lie that the government has been telling over and over again it makes me quite upset that they do that because we've actually on the international level there's a growing movement towards um, introducing these systems in other countries the international labor organization has set guidelines which actually make recommendations that governments introduce these systems and big companies who contract for for transport services as well as transport companies employers and and unions all adhere to those systems they talk about the need for enforcement with penalties in the ILO guidelines um, and so, you know, we're talking about a global standard that is increasingly being uh, introduced. I go to Europe to talk to stakeholders, uh, you know, including employers all the time because they're introducing uh, they're interested in introducing their systems in these countries. So, you know, it's it's a shame to me that the government, the Korean government has an opportunity to be setting a standard and leading on what is becoming a global trend and instead wants to give up on that opportunity. Just briefly, one more point on that. Uh, I understand Australia, uh, the nationwide system was scrapped after two weeks in 2016, though. Mm-hmm. So the the law that made uh, that created the possibility for setting um, fair and safe rates on a national level was introduced in 2012. But then, of course, 
there's the need to then set up the body that sets the rates, do the research, and then have the consultation dialogue with the stakeholders. And so it took a while to actually, and that, that body actually has more authority. So it was doing other things, setting other types of standards for conditions. And, and when it, it did set a rate and um, under a very politicized campaign of a conservative government that had just gone into power, we, they, they abolished the law like, you know, without consultation and, you know, in a very planned and kind of quick way through the, through the parliament. But um, what's, you know, important is that the whole time that was happening, the system in New South Wales, which is the same system, was actually being strengthened and expanded. And since 2016, there's very high level of um, agreement among industry players, unions, politicians that the system needs to come back in. And so they're working on new legislation now. They have a there was in August a roundtable of of industry sta- stakeholders of all sides, and they signed an agreement about the need to reintroduce this legislation. So the government doesn't really like to talk about that story. But I see it as a hiccup on the national level in Australia, where safe rate systems were actually being strengthened on the state level. And now that's creating the basis to reintroduce it on the national level next year. Okay. uh, Seeing as we don't have anyone from the government today to represent their side of this issue, uh, let me ask perhaps some more questions uh, on their behalf. As such, uh, the Transport Minister, Wan Hinyong, has argued uh, against... uh, uh, expanding the coverage of the safe rate system, uh, saying that other cargo truck drivers, the unions demanding to be included, have stable incomes, enough income, basically, which goes against the purpose of the strike, that is, according to the union, to ensure their right to live. What's your take on this argument? Yeah, I mean, again, first of all, there's a certain amount of misinformation that the government is putting out. So, uh, the ministry is saying that uh, truck drivers in these other sectors have very high pay, and that's actually not true. So the survey done by the government, the average take-home pay at the end of the month for drivers in the in the five sectors that um, the legislation would would expand coverage to is uh, like 3.6 million won. But if you look at what that means in terms of uh, what these workers are making on an hourly basis, it's about uh, 10,001, which is ha- almost ha- half of the average for uh, an average worker in Korea. Plus, they're working 360, on average, 369 hours a week, which is, you know, over 200 hours more than, than other workers. And so, um, again, the point of safe rates is not necessarily to raise people's wages to an exorbitant amount. What it is, what the point is to create a standard which you don't drop below to stop excessive competition that leads to downward cost cutting, right, that becomes dangerous, and then to allow workers to reduce their hours so that they can drive more safely. And so we could see a safe rate system coming in. This take-home rate might increase a little, not really that much, but what would happen is workers would be able to receive that amount but drive a reasonable amount of time in keeping our roads safe. You know, and let's say, you know, so that it's a standard, we're setting a standard, we're not necessarily like racking up the rates, that's not the goal of the union, our goal is to create a safe standard, uh, and reduce, reduce dangerous competition. Um, So I think, you know, that, that, without this kind of background information, it's easy for the public to kind of listen to what the government is saying and, and maybe think it makes sense. But that's because they're not showing the full side of the, the whole, the, you know, the whole story. Uh, another argument that the Transport Ministry is saying is that uh, the safe trucking rate system, uh, freight rate system, hasn't been effective since it was introduced, saying that the number of accidents 
involving container and cement trucks, in fact, increased by 8% over the past three years. Uh, as we said, these are the only trucks that are subject to the system, the uh, cement and uh, 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 container mm-hmm. uh, uh, trucks. What do you make of this figure, 8% increase? So uh, I, uh, another piece of misinformation on the part of the government, basically the government is taking... Um, what we have, which is insufficient data to be able to demonstrate the relationship between the system and accident rates. I'll explain in a moment why it's insufficient data. And so we have a problem of having insufficient data. And for that reason, we're not being able to accurately measure the impact of the system on accident rates. We can measure the impact of the system on uh, working hours. And everybody agrees that working hours have been reduced. And working hours, if they're too long, will lead to accidents. So we can see that. We can see that workers are less tired. We can see that cement drivers have stopped overloading their vehicles. This is all from the government data, right? That is all improving safety. But what we don't have is correct data. The data that the... Uh, ministry has put out is not looking specifically at the trucks that are covered by uh, the safe rate system, which is just cement and container trucks. They're looking what they're looking at because the only data that they have is for articulated vehicles. But mm. articulated vehicles are not just cement vehicles and container vehicles. There are other vehicles involved, so they don't have that. Second, uh, they only have a year and a half of data. You can't see any trend within a year and a half of data for any kind of research. Uh, you know, the, the, the number of accidents increased. It's not a big increase, but, it, you know, as a percent, it looks like something bigger, but it's, it's, it's actually uh, not st- statistically significant. On top of that, the system is our only in place. It's been in place on a temporary basis. We know that there are thousands of violations of the system, right? So if the system is being violated, I mean, of course, where are we have strong membership. It's being, you know, the, the transport companies and clients are adhering to it, and we can see that there is improvements in those areas. But on a whole scale, there is a lot of violation. If there's violations going on, the reason people are violating is they don't think it's permanent. So, you know, transport companies and clients are not going to adhere to it if there's a timeline on it. So there's lots of violations. We don't. We only have two, a year and a half of data. It's not data on the right trucks, and the data is not disaggregated. You know that you have to to get a really statistically significant result. You have to be able to control for things like how long did that vehicle drive for? Yeah. Under yes. So so so, but. Um, so the data is insufficient to say anything about the relationship between the system and accident uh, rates. But if you look at New South Wales, you can see over a long period of time that definitely accident rates have dropped, and other research from other countries shows this. Therefore, um, yeah, sure. sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, you talk about violations, yeah. uh, but you're saying it's coming from the top, then, of the, mm-hmm. from the companies. Uh, but to the truck drivers, as I understand it, they're uh, essentially being called freelancers. They they, they own, mm-hmm. they can control their hours and working. But so, where's the violation? Who who decides on how, how where you know so how you violate? If we if we simplify the system and say there's a big uh, company at the top of the of the supply chain that wants to send their goods. They need to transport their goods. They signed a contract with a transport company. Transport company signs a contract with the drivers. So if the transport company doesn't pay enough money to the trucking company, the excuse me, the, the big company at the top, we call them clients or cargo owners, if they don't pay enough money down the chain, then... Uh, the transport company can't pay enough money to the truck drivers. So the truck drivers then can't get enough money, then they're forced to work long hours. So mm. the violations are happening in two places. They're happening at that first link where the clients or the cargo owners aren't paying enough to the trucking companies uh, for them to be able to pay a decent uh, rate to, to the drivers, or it's it's happening at the level sure. of, the, yeah, of the transport companies. 
OK, and President Yoon Sung-yeol issued this uh, government order forcing striking truckers in the cement industry to return to work. That was during the sixth day of the uh, strike early yes. this week. He said the order was being issued to prevent the people's livelihoods and the nation's economy from suffering more serious damage from the strike. Uh, estimates by the government suggest that uh, the cement industry uh, shipments have plummeted by up to 95% since the walkout began. Uh, this has inflicted, of course, uh, sales losses and supplies running short and construction sites no longer being able to lay concrete. Uh, and also due to the strike, gas stations are running out of fuel reportedly as well. And there are concerns that the prolonged strike may bring about uh, a serious crisis to the national economy, which would then in turn affect ordinary citizens. So the concern is this is going to affect everyone, not just the truckers and the government. What are your thoughts on these concerns? I mean, I'd like to, you know, sort of ask the listeners if they feel like a national emergency is going on, because I don't know that people feel it on a daily basis. But nonetheless, it is true that strikes have an impact on the economy. That's what they're about. Uh, a strike, you know, by its nature will have an economic impact and international standards and domestic stand in, uh, national law, uh, you know, says that you can't penalize a strike specific just because it has an economic impact, right? It's really easy. You know, the government made a uh, so for that reason, um, you know, to issue a return to work order uh, against striking workers who are striking about their wages, conditions, their health and safety and the safety of the public is, you know, it's actually by international labor law and by the Constitution, an act of forced labor. It's an illegal act of forced labor. That's what the government's doing. If the government wants to find a solution to this, they can, you know, they reached an agreement with the trucker truck drivers union back in June to continue the system and actively discuss expansion to other sectors. They can just come back to the table and say, OK, we'll uphold the agreement. Let's sit down and talk about this. But they keep coming in and saying, we have nothing to say to you. So if the government just showed a little bit more of a willingness to dialogue and to uphold its past promises, it could end a problem, which is, you know, it's a problem for, you know, for the drivers much more than it is for everybody. I mean, they're the ones that are putting their livelihoods and themselves on the line um, because they know that the system is important not only for themselves, but for other truck drivers and for the public. And finally, do you think the truck drivers, the unions, do they have, uh, are they willing to compromise in some areas as well to negotiate uh, with the government? The government at the moment, uh, you're saying, has saying they have nothing to discuss. But what about the truck drivers? At the, at the, the negotiations yesterday, the KPT Cargo Truckers Solidarity Division brought with them a proposal on compromise. They are ready to compromise. And the ministry, you know, came, the, their counterparts came in and sat down and said, we have nothing, this isn't a negotiation, we have nothing to discuss with you, go back to work. And we're not going to, you know, we're not going to cancel these return to work orders. So it's, you know, it's really the government side that isn't, isn't willing to sit down and have a conversation and try to reach a compromise. It's, that's not coming from the union. OK, we're going to have to end, there, end it there. We've been speaking to Imwal San from the International Transport Workers Federation. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index rose 7.31 points, or 0.30% on Thursday, closing the day at 2,479.84. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also gained 11.06 points, or 1.52%, to close the day at 740.60. On the foreign exchange, the local currency, the South Korean won, strengthened 19.11 against the U.S. dollar, ending the day at 1,299.71.
You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Korea Trending, a daily segment looking at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Diane Yu with us to bring us those stories. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. It's good to see you again. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? First, we'll talk about Seoul City's plans to increase late-night taxi fares from tonight. Next, we'll take a look at why South Koreans' favorite winter season street snacks are disappearing. And we'll end with exciting news from Qatar as Australia became the first Asian football confederation team to advance to the knockout round of the World Cup. Okay, so let's start with that first story then, which is a reminder about something that we've talked about on the show before. Can you tell us more? Right. According to the Seoul Metropolitan Government, the taxi fare adjustment plan is set to be applied from 10 p.m. today. The plan includes extending late-night surcharge hours to 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. from the previous midnight to 4 a.m. The taxi fares during that time will also increase by up to 40%. So the basic late-night taxi fare is expected to rise to between 4,601 and 5,301. That's about 4 U.S. dollars and 7 cents. Right, so for our listeners in Seoul who may be looking to escape the cold weather by taking a cab uh, tonight, you'll need to keep the hike in mind from tonight. Uh, You also need to consider the exact time you take a cab as well, right? Right, so the surcharge is applied according to the basics of economics, supply and demand. A 40% Mm. surcharge is applied from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. when most of the taxis are busy with high demand, and the rest of the time, 10 to 11 p.m. and 2 to 4 a.m., a 20% surcharge will be applied. Taxis that didn't fall under the late-night surcharge policy before will also be included this time. For example, deluxe and jumbo taxis will apply a 20% surcharge from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. the next day. And an out-of-city surcharge will also come into effect, and those who have destinations outside of Seoul will have to pay 20% more as well. And so this is uh, going to put another financial burden on the citizens of the capital with plans to raise the basic taxi fares in just two months as well. That's right. It seems like the bills for taking taxis in Seoul will be even higher next year. The basic fare for standard taxis in the capital will jump by 1,001 from February 2023 to 4,801. Longer distance travellers are expected to be more affected by the hike as the distance for which the base fare is applied will be shortened by 400 meters from the first 2 kilometers to 1.6 kilometers. The price increase also includes deluxe and jumbo taxis. Their base fare will also be raised by 501 to 7,001 per 3 kilometers. Still, if it helps increase the number of taxi drivers on the streets, uh, making it easier to get a cab late at night, Mm -hmm. uh, an issue which these increased charges are aimed at tackling, uh, then there are many Seoul citizens who have said that they would welcome the costs. Uh, So we'll see if it does help the uh, situation alleviate it somewhat anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is something that's a bit sad, especially for those who enjoy Korean winter snacks. Right, so whenever the cold wave hits the nation and you realise it's winter season through freezing cold air, there's this smell you notice as you walk along the sidewalk. It's the smell of pungopang, a fish-shaped pastry stuffed with sweetened red bean paste, and hotdog, cinnamon sugar-filled pancakes sold at street stalls. However, it's difficult to find one these days as businesses closed down during the COVID-19 pandemic and because of the recent sharp rise in ingredient prices. 
According to the Seoul Metropolitan Government, the number of street stalls, which was about 9,300 in 2012, plunged to around 5,800 in 2021, down 37 percent in just nine years. This number is expected to drop further as the social distancing rules were in place until April this year. Yes, this is a real shame. Uh, You mentioned that the sharp rise in prices uh, was another factor leading to disappearing street stalls. Mm -hmm. How expensive are the ingredients now? When In order to make both snacks, you need cooking oil and flour. And compared to the same period last year, the price of both items increased by about 43% and 37%, respectively, showing a large increase. Mm. And as for the main ingredient for bungopang, red bean paste, it was worse. According to the data announced by the Korea Agro-Fisheries and Food Trade Corporation, the wholesale price of 40 kilograms of imported red beans was about 270000 slightly above 200 U.S. dollars. This is a 45% increase compared to the average price over the year. So it's understandable for the businesses to shut down as it's hard for them to make ends meet. Indeed. However, that hasn't stopped people from uh, finding innovative ways to get their favourite winter snacks, right? Right. There's a map app that shows where street vendors are, and the users voluntarily pin the locations for others to see. Since its establishment in 2019, 11,000 shops have been saved on the map. Also, there's an app that finds where you can get winter snacks near you. Through the app, you can find the nearest store to your current location, and you can see the distance, price, ratings, and reviews. So perhaps you won't be able to find uh, these stores as often as you would in the past, but there are ways to seek them out and warm the cockles uh, during the cold winter months. Right. Okay, let's uh, move on to our last story of the day, and it's uh, news from Qatar. Another surprising win at the World Cup. Right, it certainly was surprising news. Australia grabbed their first World Cup knockout stage ticket in 16 years on Wednesday after the team beat European Championship semi-finalist Denmark 1-0 at the Al Janoub Stadium in Qatar. After Wednesday's win for the Socceroos, the team came in second place in Group D with a total of six points. This places Australia as the first team from the Asian Football Confederation to advance to the next round. Now the team will face off against the winner of Group C, Argentina, on Saturday at Ahmad bin Ali Stadium. Okay, so uh, before we get to that game, what happened at the game that they won? How were the Socceroos able to pick up the win? So it was a difficult 45 minutes for both Australia and Denmark with no one scoring in the first half. And Australia was especially struggling with the opposing team having the majority of the possession. Denmark created chances and could have taken an early lead, but their shots from the close range in the 11th minute was blocked by the Australian goalkeeper Matt Ryan. But tables turned fast in the second half. In the 60th minute after a tight match, Australia scored a goal. Its striker uh, Matthew Leckie got past the Danish defense and twisted into space for only for, for the only goal, which sealed their win. Yes, it's a shame we don't have Walter, our other Australian contributor for career mm-hmm. trending, here with us today, as I'm sure he would have been delighted along with his uh, countrymen back home by this news, of course. Uh, It's been a while since they advanced to the knockout stages, right? Mm -hmm. So there were, of course, all of the Australians were thrilled to hear this news because this is only the second time Australia has qualified for the knockout stage following the 2006 World Cup, where they lost to Italy 1-0. Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese led the celebration by calling the game a, quote-unquote, magnificent win 
by the Socceroos. Thousands of fans has gathered in Melbourne's Federation Square to watch the match in the middle of the night and cheered ecstatically after the win. However, Team Australia's coach Graham Arnold said that there will be no celebration tonight and added that he is more focused on what's ahead of the team in the next stage. Yes, uh, they'll be taking on the football powerhouse Argentina, as we said. So it's going to be incredibly difficult, of course. But who knows? Saudi Arabia beat them early in this tournament. Mm -hmm. So maybe the Socceroos can keep the dream going. And in the meantime, we hope Team Korea are inspired by this result as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's all the time we have for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Next up, it's our weekly segment, Explore Korea, discovering the cultural, historical and travel highlights that Korea has to offer. And this week, we have our arts explorer, Anjeo, joining us in the studio. Joe, hello. It's great to have you with us. Likewise, Chang-ho. Okay, so what are we talking about this week? Well, chang I mean, obviously. This was a no-brainer after the big news from UNESCO yesterday, right? Hashtag Talchum. Yes, the Korean traditional mask dance. And FYI... Talchum, that word, is a combination of two smaller words, right? Right. Tal, which literally means mask, and chum, which literally means dance. So, yes, Uh, we're going to talk about Talchum today. Um, It has made the UNESCO's representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. It is South Korea's 22nd cultural gem, which has made the prestigious list. So this week's edition of Explore Korea is going to be an introduction to Talchum including its artistic significance, social significance, and a few tips on how to appreciate the art firsthand. Okay, so you're stepping away from your usual oeuvre of uh, contemporary art. I had no other choice. To <laughs> introduce us to some uh, traditional mm-hmm. culture. Interesting. Okay, uh, let's first talk about what exactly Talchun is. Sure. You gave us the uh, lexical definition, but mm-hmm. can you tell us a bit more about some of its key details. Okay, so first off, again, tar plus chum, that equal that means mask plus dance. However, whenever you have dance, you normally have what? You have music. Exactly, course, right? Yes. So that's an addition to this comprehensive art. And another thing is there's a lot of drama in it as well, right? Like, for example, um, this iconic traditional talchum by the name of Hawe Pershingu Talluri, which originated in the Hawe village in the beautiful city of Andong in North Gyeongsang province. But if you take a look at the macro structure of this quote-unquote dance, it's actually more of a play than a dance, mm. right? And this play, uh, well, each act has its unique combination of different masks and its own choreography. That's where the dance comes in. And this is performed with the oral elements of the drama. Right. right. It's about using dance uh, to tell the story, really. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And another key aspect of Talchum is that traditionally it was a religious practice, right? So back Mm. in the day, Talchum performances generally had a small group of invisible VVIPs in their audiences, namely the deities of vernacular religion. So what the peep, the villagers did when they performed Tarchum was that they hoped they could please the deities in hopes of enjoying a bumper harvest and good 
health. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, in traditional Korean culture, there's a term called sonangshin, and sonangshin means tutelary deity. So it's pretty much like the Korean traditional version of the guardian angel for your village. Mm. So what happens is you want to provide entertainment to the sonangshin, and in return, the sonangshin will take good care of you in both agriculture and health. So that was, that was the trade-off which people believed in back in the day. Right, so there are a lot of layers mm. to this art form, it seems. The darts, the mask, music, story... And religious elements as well. So the more you look, the more there is to unpack. And it has left, of course, a significant cultural impact on the career we see today as well, right? Absolutely. So, And I believe that this is exactly one of the main reasons why it made the UNESCO list. But um, let's first talk about aesthetics. Then the art's social slash political significances, right? Mm. Uh, now, the two artistic significances that I want to highlight today are that Taichum is a fantastically comprehensive art, as I said earlier, and a fantastically interactive art as well. So, once again, it's comprehensive art. It's not just some kind of a dance with some mask. It's a form of visual art, acoustic art with the music and drama and choreography. And it's, therefore, it's a collaboration of actually really, really masterful artists, right? Some of the artists don't even appear on stage. For example, the mask makers, right? Mm. And the musicians, the musicians normally don't have masks on, which show that we are professional musicians. We're here to not participate in the mask dance itself, but actually provide the beat to it. Right. Although it doesn't mean that we're any less important, right? And then, of course, you have the dancers slash actors. Now, think about it. Acting is already challenging. <laughs> Dancing is too. If you're doing those at the same time, at the same stage, then you really have something going on, right? Sure. And now I'm going to drop a very, very, very important term when it comes to Korean folk performing art. Okay. It's called chuimse. Right. If you have lived in Korea long enough, you've probably heard this term at least once, right? Especially, for example, when you go to a pansori. Uh, 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 performance, right? And Pansuri is, of course, traditional Korean folk opera. But anyways, um, the trim, what Trimse is, it's a form of this really unique Korean interactive art where the audience members really actively uh, participate in the act. And mm. what I mean by that, I'll give you a very uh, typical Korean example. For example, when the audience says something like, Charanda, that means you're doing really well. And, of course, that's not scripted, right? Sure. And the performance, what they'll do, well, who said 잘한다 right now? Oh, that's you, okay? Well, you know what? 생김새도 잘생겼고 말도 잘생겼네. Which means you look good and your words look good as well, right? Right. So you're improvising, right? And therefore, you're actually uh, this, developing this dialectic of a better, more interesting art. So it's almost like a call and response, but perhaps also like a heckle as well exactly, in between, right? something like that, where the uh, audience are uh, compelled to uh, interact with the uh, art form itself as well. Sure. So it's not like, for example, because we have the World Cup going on, some, you know, hecklers or some hooligans like throwing bottles <laughs> at, at, sure, sure. onto the pitch or something like sure. that. It's, it's not like that. Contributing it rather yes. than disturbing. But sometimes verbally, that kind of a thing happens. For example... When you see this really evil character doing their evil things, and you're an audience member, and you say, oh, 못했다, which means you're really, really bad. And then the performer can say something like, 썼으면서, Why are you sitting in the audience despite having a mask on? Why are you not performing <laughs> up here? 그리고 누가 만든 가면이길래 그렇게 못생겼어? And who made your mask? 
that is so ugly. So actually what the performer is trying to say is that, you, of course, the audience member doesn't have any mask on. They're just saying that your natural face is just really not that much good looking, right? <laughs> and it's all just for laughs, right? Sure, it's just kind, some kind of a you know, healthy, mm. uh, mutual, I would say, a grill, if you will, right? Com- comedic grill, that is. Right? It's a bit like uh, uh, the British panto as well, the pantomimes. Yes, of course. Yes, okay. Absolutely. So the references uh, are also... Uh, we 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 see that we see this sort of a uh, uh, um, fun kind of uh, interactive uh, uh, part of the performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the social or political significance of Talchum that you also mentioned? Although it is uh, seen as an art form for the common people, it's not quite as simple as that, right? I'll just put it this way: first off, no social stratification, no Talchum. It's as simple as that, right? Um, because the thing is, whenever you have a Taichung performance, especially back in the day, like, for example, the noble Yangban class, they would either come over themselves, disguised or kind of like, you know, hiding somewhere in the audience, or send someone over there to <laughs> check out what's going on. The reason why is because uh, Taichung, in many, many cases, are very, very strong satire, mm. right? So they question... So you call yourselves the noble, but are you actually noble, right? So it's a quote-unquote noble class kind of a situation. And because of that sentiment, when you go to a traditional uh, Taichung performance back in the day, it was kind of like a social indicator of how people in lower brackets of social stratification understood and took the leadership of the society, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where things get really interesting, Ironically, in many cases, as a matter of fact, the noble class financially supported Taichung performances, Hmm. right? And the reason why is because they did so to provide an opportunity of expression for the middle and lower classes, right? And another thing is, again, I talked about the comedic grill, right? Right. It was kind of like these people in the upper class enjoying the comedy of a self-roast. Right. How are you going to get that, right? You want to get a good belly laugh by actually making fun of yourself. So that's why, that was another reason why they actually supported uh, this form of art, right? And another thing is there's a religious intention as well, as I mentioned earlier. And what I mean by that is, well, if there's a religious intention, regardless of my class, I really want to do well to the deities of my village, right? So that was another reason uh, why uh, they financially supported Taichum. And this is why I believe we can safely say that Taichum, while being rather critical of the strict social stratification of Korea's past, it wasn't necessarily a practice with the intention or inspiration of completely overthrowing the then social system, but in fact, it reinforced it to some degree. Right. See, a roast, I think, is a good way to look at it, mm-hmm. especially a roast in the courtyard of the people that they are roasting. Sure. Sort of. Yeah. Exactly. And another thing is, um, if we talk, if we take a look at the mask, right? Um, what the mask does, it has a quasi hiding, uh, quasi identity hiding effect. And what I mean by that is because still. You live in a small village, everybody knows who's performing anyways, whether you have a mask or not, right? (laughs) Mm. And you can, you know, uh, tell from their voices and that kind of thing. But still, because you have that kind of a quasi-filter, you have a little bit more liberty to be more candid about what you actually want to Mm. say about the noble class. So that's one thing that I also wanted to mention. And last but not least, the power of getting together. This is the moment where villages actually get together, have a listen to what the performers have to say, mm. and 
either agree or disagree. So it was, was kind of like, and it's weird that I say this because this was all during a monarchy, but a democratic practice of the people of the society getting together and sharing information and thoughts on how their communities were ruled, mm. right? And it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite uh, political scientists of all time, uh, Robert Putnam. He's a political science scientist at Harvard, and he wrote back in 1995 this iconic article by the name of Bowling Alone. And what this basically is is that traditionally in the U.S., People used to have like these bowling tournaments in their communities, and then all of a sudden, people are only go- going to the bowling alleys to bowl alone or with a small number of friends. Right. And how this political scientist sees that is that because people no longer, quote-unquote, hang out in larger groups at the bowling alley, that was actually an opportunity for them to talk about the economy, politics, society, education, so on and so forth. So it was actually a really good kind of a positive thing for the development of U.S. democracy, whereas now people are being a little bit more individualized, and therefore he sees, in that sense, a decline of the spirit of U.S. uh, democracy, right? And now we have these smartphones and all these kind of things. So I think it's really interesting to, you know, um, apply that kind of idea uh, in terms of understanding the political, social, and cultural significance of this wonderful form of Korean traditional art. So it's a bit like a pub culture, but with an activity Mm -hmm. involved. In the U.S. it would be bowling, but in the past in Korea it would be taltrum. I'll put it this way. Social media before social media. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, interesting. Uh, At this point, uh, with the background that you have armed us with, I think uh, many of our listeners will be curious to see Talchum for themselves. Of course, there'll be videos available online and there'll be a couple of photos on our social media pages as well, uh, as usual, uh, and on KBS underscore Crow24 on Instagram. But I'm sure many would want to see a performance live as well, Joe. Do you have any recommendations for any upcoming Taichung performances that we can seek out? Yeah, well, first off, don't be too surprised if all of a sudden you see all these different Taichung performances in 2023 (laughs) because it's made the UNESCO list, right? But the one uh, performance that I want to talk about today is actually here in Seoul. It's called Chunun Saram Namsan, which... In Korea means the dancer of Namsan, and the venue is the beautiful Namsan Gluga Concert Hall at the Namsan Hanuk Village. Um, if you haven't checked out the Namsan Hanuk Village, it's a must-go place during your stay here in Korea. But um, this particular uh, Talchum is actually a contemporary reinterpretation of a number of different traditional Talchum varieties. And what I mean by contemporary reinterpretation, it's actually a hip-hop version of Right, okay. So I think it's going to be really cool. I hear that a lot of people have been giving it a huge thumbs up. So go do check it out. As a matter of fact, they are performing tomorrow, Friday, and once again on Saturday. Okay, well, Joe, thank you for giving us all this information on Talchum today. And it's wonderful to have the art form recognized by UNESCO in this way as well, cementing its place mm-hmm. in world history. So that was Talchum, the traditional Korean mask dance. We'll wrap it up there today, Jail. Thank you for that comprehensive overview and uh, we'll see you next time. Great. This is Swiss flutist Philipp Jund. I am professor of flute at Neuchâtel Conservatory in Switzerland and at Kangam University in Korea. You are listening to Korea 24.
We've come now to morning edition preview, our daily closing segment where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Crow Times and the Crow Herald. And for that, we have our staff editor, Richard Larkin, joining us in the studio once again. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. Okay, so let's start with the first story. What is it about? First is about an interesting program for children in Seoul. Details can be found in Im and Bill's article in the weekend section of the Korea Herald. Apparently, the Seoul Metropolitan Office of Education has been encouraging students to live in the countryside for one year. Wow, for a whole year? Yes. Okay, sending uh, children to uh, the countryside. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about this program at Ames? Well, it's for elementary students and first and second grade middle school students. The aim is to have them experience things that they wouldn't have if they lived in Seoul. 263 students participated as of this month, and the students had options on how to live, moving with parents, staying at a farmhouse, or in a local dormitory. Cho Hee-yun, who is the superintendent of the Office of Education, said that the future generation of students really have to perceive the world with ecological sensitivity. Interesting. Okay. So uh, has this program received uh, positive feedback so far? Well, out of the 149 families that took part in the program so far, 17 of them are starting their second year. Wow. One advantage seems to be that the students were able to study in the countryside schools during the COVID-19 pandemic without any problems. It also seems like many were happy to leave the concrete jungle that gave students pressure and anxiety and were grateful for activities such as insect observations and rice transplanting. They were able to enjoy new experiences. Interesting. So there's been a trend, obviously, in Korea over the last uh, several decades of more and more people from the countryside moving to uh, the big city's whole. Uh, but perhaps this is a sort of reverse trend that this must benefit the countryside towns and areas as well. That's true. Many countryside schools have fewer children than before. So being able to add more students means that the schools don't have to close down. Also, students who are in classes by themselves are able to make friends with children their age because of the programme. So it has a nice social aspect for everyone involved as well. The article goes into more detail about the future of the programme, so it's worth reading. Yes, indeed. It certainly sounds interesting. OK, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Park and Soul's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times gives us information about Mexico's first ever exhibition of Korean webtoons that will take place next week. The exhibition is called Ola K Webtoon and will run from December 5th until February 5th next year. It is co-hosted by the Korea Manhua Concerts Agency and the Korean Cultural Centre Mexico. Interesting. Okay, so K-Webtoons, they have become very popular around the world in recent years. Yes. But I uh, understand that there is a particular reason why this event is being held in Mexico this year. Right. The event will mark the 60th anniversary of diplomatic ties between South Korea and Mexico. According to the article, the show is themed around webcomics that have gained popularity in their original format or through their small screen adaptations. For example, True Beauty is one of the main features. The romantic comedy series is available in over 100 countries, and during its run, it got over 4 billion views worldwide. Right, so this is a good way for Korea to promote its uh, content industry to people who may not know much about it. Then. And also the country's culture. There will also be cultural artefacts from the Joseon period at the exhibition, so people are able to see Korea's history, such as Golongpo. This is a dragon-embroidered robe reserved for royal family members, including kings. Visitors are also able to try on Korean traditional dress handbook as well. Indeed, OK. We'll wrap it up there for today's uh, Morning Edition preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>